Hey, everybody. It's always great to be back at River Glen to teach. Uh, for over 20 years, uh, I served as a local pastor in uh, churches, and including a, a church plant that River Glen started. Uh, since 2011, have had an opportunity, usually a, a couple times a year, to, to share here at River Glen and always appreciate it when Ben invites me back. For the last four years, uh, I've been full-time with a ministry partner of River Glen, Christian Financial Resources, CFR. We do loans to uh, churches like River Glen. And to fund those loans, we receive investments from people like you and me and Investors know that the only thing that that's being used for is to help other churches like River Glen. And it's kind of cool that the church that my family is a part of, we attend the Pewaukee campus, that because of people like you and me from this church who've invested at CFR, we've been able to literally extend loans into millions of dollars to other churches because of what's been invested here. So that's really cool. If you'd like to find more about that, how you can be part of that, see me after the service. We'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to be honest. I want you to, to raise your hand to indicate if you have ever struggled to forgive someone who's hurt you. Okay? Raise your hands. Okay. Now look around. Oh, you brought them down too soon. I was going to let you know that anybody who hadn't raised their hand, you shouldn't trust them, right? Right? Because the uh, uh, truth is we've, we've all been hurt and forgiveness is hard, right? Theologian, author C.S. Lewis, he said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. There was a season when I struggled with forgiveness and I wrestled with what it looked like to extend forgiveness in a, a way that Jesus would expect from me. It was when I was serving in the very first church that I was the pastor of. I was a, a Bible college student serving in a small church in rural Missouri. One Sunday, there was a congregational meeting held uh, a vote was taken among the members of the congregation. They were trying to make a big decision uh, regarding the church. And decision was made by vast majority of voting members. But there was a woman named Marguerite who was not in that majority. She did not like what the majority decided. And she felt it was my fault that it turned out the way that it did. And so that began on that day a season of conflict with Marguerite that went on for over a year. Now at that church, we had a, an hour for classes before worship service. And she taught a class on Sunday morning. So starting that next Sunday, she would come and teach her class, but she would leave before the worship service. Then she started staying through the singing and communion and offering. But then when I would get up to teach, she would stand up, walk out of the room and slam the door on her way out. She eventually got to the part where she could endure sitting through the entire service, but she refused to acknowledge me personally in any way. I would see her before the service, say, good morning, Marguerite, and she would not even look my way. She would completely ignore me as if I didn't exist. Again, went on for over a year. Probably the low point in that conflict came at a community spaghetti supper held in that town. I sat down at a table where there was only one seat left after I sat down. And guess who came and sat in that one seat? 
I was actually relieved. I actually thought it was a good thing. When I saw her sit there, I thought, oh, she's getting over this. She chose to sit by me. And so I said, hello, Marguerite. She turned, stood up, grabbed her plate, said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize where I was sitting, and went and sat at another table. No one else at that table attended the church where I was the preacher and uh, where Marguerite attended, but everyone at the table knew I was the preacher at the church where Marguerite attended. So it was a little bit awkward for the next few moments. She actually left her dessert behind. Someone suggested I throw it at her. I did not. I actually picked it up and I took it to where she had reseated herself and I said, Marguerite, I think you, you forgot this and left it with her. Through that conflict over a year, I went out of my way to continually show kindness to Marguerite. Every time I would see her, I would still greet her even though I knew she was going to ignore me. I would hear that she had done something helpful around the church, maybe reorganize a storage closet or something. I would handwrite her a thank you note to let her know that it was appreciated. It had been noticed what she had done. And I wish I could say I was motivated to show her kindness like that because I just wanted to try and, and show forgiveness like Jesus showed me forgiveness, that I just was trying to, to follow Jesus in my behavior toward her. I did have a biblical motivation, but it was a little bit different. I clung to a promise in Proverbs 25 where we read this. If your enemy is hungry, give him or her food to eat. If she is thirsty, give her water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on her head, and the Lord will reward you. I claimed that as a promise. I believe that those verses said that if I did my part, if I always did what was right, the day would come, the coals would come, and I would have my vengeance. I knew what it was going to look like. It would involve a lot of tears and an apology from Marguerite and admitting how she had treated me during that year. It's probably no surprise that all these years later, that tearful apology has never come. And I'm a little bit ashamed to this day of the fact that that was my motivation, that I was being kind on the outside because on the inside, I wanted my day of reward, my vengeance. And you may have heard that story and thought, oh, Jared, that's, that's really cute, but you have no idea what I'm trying to forgive the hurt that someone else caused me. And, and I understand that my story probably in no way compares to what some of us have experienced as victims of someone else's malicious attacks. Some of us were physically harmed by people who were supposed to be our protectors. Some of us dealt with verbal assaults from people who took advantage of our most vulnerable seasons of our lives. And it's easy for someone else to say, well, you've just got to forgive and get past that. But how do you do that when the hurt and the scars are still there as reminders of the wrong that's been done to us? And what about when someone has wronged not just us, but those we love? What about those who have caused harm to our kids. We're supposed to forgive and move on from that. A few years ago, a story aired on this CBS Evening News about a mother and a struggle she had when it came to forgiving. Listen to Mary's story. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. 
Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. So do we really say to Mary Johnson, who now has her as her next door neighbor, the murderer of her son, you know, you just got to forgive and let it go. Anybody who's been hurt in a life-altering way knows that it's nearly impossible to just forget what's happened. A wife whose husband cheated, a parent whose child was killed by a drunk driver, do we say forgive and move on? Several years ago, Pastor Larry Osborne wrote this. Anyone who's been deeply hurt knows that painful memories stick. They can't be willed away. Pray as we might, they aren't erased. The pain may lessen, the memories may fade, the nightmares may disappear, but gone for good? Not often. Well, in our detour series that we're wrapping up today, we've been looking at the life of a man named Joseph that we read about in the book of Genesis in the Bible. Last week, we left off the story, Joseph was in prison, spent years in prison, forgotten about in prison, accused of something he didn't do. And yet even in that season where he felt forgotten by everyone, he realized God was with him. Let's recap Joseph's life up until this point. He was the 11th of 12 sons. He was the favorite of his father Jacob, also known as Israel. That led to a lot of jealousy among his brothers. Some of his brothers got together and said, let's kill Joseph. The oldest of his brothers, Reuben, said, how about instead of killing Joseph, we just throw him in this pit over here. And we're told that Reuben planned to secretly come back and rescue Joseph when the other brothers went around. He didn't get the chance to do that, though, because after they threw him in the pit, some slave traders came by. They decided to, to sell Joseph to the slavers. They took him to Egypt. When he was in Egypt, he was wrongfully accused of something, sentenced to prison, uh, forgotten about in prison, sent to prison, forgotten about in prison. And then through a series of events, he gains favor with Pharaoh Pharaoh ends up putting him in charge of almost everything under Pharaoh in Egypt. Pretty much second in command over the, the entire country, answering only to Pharaoh. A little bit of a, a riches to rags to riches story. And we're going to pick up the story there today. So, Joseph's been through all these detours, these seasons of life he didn't plan for, but now he finds himself second in command in Egypt. 
And part of why he is second in command is because God revealed to Joseph that seven years of prosperity were coming to Egypt when they would be able to grow more crops than they needed, but those seven years would then be followed by seven years of famine when they would not be able to grow anything. And so Joseph suggests to Pharaoh, during the coming seven years of abundance, let's save up the extra food so that during the seven years of famine, we have food for people to survive. Pharaoh says, great idea, Joseph, you're in charge of it. And that's how he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. This famine that takes place doesn't just affect Egypt, though. It affects that whole part of the world and extends all the way up to the area that Joseph is from, where his family, his brothers and his father still live. So that's where we pick up the story. There's this famine. Joseph is distributing the extra grain that they've been saving up. Genesis chapter 42, here's what happens with Joseph's family. When Jacob, Joseph's father, also known as Israel, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Spoken like a true dad, right? Like, boys, why are you standing around doing nothing, looking at each other? We're hungry. There's food in Egypt. I've got an idea. Go and buy us some, right? Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Joseph had been Jacob's favorite. Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. So Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, is now the favorite of Jacob. He doesn't send him to Egypt because he's concerned about him, wants to protect him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also, where Joseph's family was. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. What a crazy turn of events. So 20 years after his brothers sold him into slavery, Joseph encounters them again. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Can you imagine all the emotion that must have overwhelmed him? And now he's got to decide what he's going to do. And so it it seems like maybe he kind of toys with them for a while as he tries to figure out what his course of action should be. He accuses them of being spies. And when they try to say, no, we're not, they they share more of their story. And they say, we are 10 of 12 brothers. The reason there's only 10 of us is because we sold one of our brothers as a slave. And our youngest is at home with our father. So Joseph hears them admit what they did to him all those years ago. And they still don't realize that it's him. And so then he has them put in prison because of the suspicion of being spies. You have to wonder if he's maybe thinking, turnabout's fair play. After what you did to me, I spent years in prison. Why don't you try it on for size for a little bit? But only three days are they in prison. He summons them to himself again, and he tells them, Before I can give you food, I need you to go and get this other brother that you told me about and bring him back. And then once he's here, I'll know that you're not lying and that you are not spies. Then the brothers start arguing amongst themselves in their own language because they think Joseph won't understand it. 
Joseph's their brother. He knows their language. They start arguing and Reuben says, remember the one who wanted to rescue Joseph? Reuben says, all of this is happening because of what we did to our brother all those years ago. Because of how we wronged him when we sold him as a slave. And the Bible tells us at that point, Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion to the point he turns away from them and weeps. It's been 20 years since that betrayal happened. Joseph's worked through that. He endured the season of slavery. He endured the season of imprisonment. That's not who he is anymore. He's Pharaoh's right-hand man. He'd moved past all that pain, and all of a sudden, it's ripped open and raw again as he hears his brother, brothers talking about what they did. And that's how it is with pain from the past sometimes, isn't it? We think we've gotten through it. We've resolved it. We don't have to deal with it anymore. And then something happens that brings it all back, and all of a sudden, it's like we reopen that wound. And that's kind of what happens for Joseph. Well, then Joseph continues to, to toy with them a little bit more, increases some suspicion with them. Again, we're told he kind of breaks down as he sees his brothers interacting. And finally, he reveals to them who he is. In Genesis 45, we read this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph's perspective is pretty amazing here. Because of what his brothers did to him, he has experienced a lot of detours, a lot of paths in his life that he had no desire to be on. And yet he recognizes that through those detours, God blessed him. Through those detours, God was faithful and continued to bring Joseph out of the detour in a better place than he was when he went in. Through the bad things that happened to Joseph, God provides, not just for Egypt, but ultimately for Joseph's family. And Joseph's family endures for generations because of this, and it's through those future generations of Joseph's family that Jesus comes. Jesus is born to future generations of Joseph's family. Joseph's family endures. Why? Because of what Joseph endured during those detour seasons of his life. Despite what his brothers did to him, Joseph forgives. We've already talked about how it's hard to forgive. So how is it that Joseph is able to forgive? How can we better extend forgiveness to others? Well, I want to, in the next few minutes, challenge us to make four commitments that will help us to practice forgiveness toward others. And here's the first Stop keeping score. Jesus was once asked a question about how much we should forgive someone. How many times should we forgive someone who's wronged us? Matthew chapter 18, we read this. 
Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, the point Jesus is making is not at 78 times, then you don't have to forgive anymore. He uses an abstract number, basically, to say it's not about keeping score. Because think about how we want God to forgive us. Do we want God to keep score until we reach the point where he says, oh, you've used it all up. No more forgiveness. Is that what we want from God? No. So don't keep score when it comes to others. Second commitment, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Same chapter in the Bible, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus told a story that made it clear. It's pretty ridiculous to point out a speck in someone else's eye when you've got a plank sticking out from your own. If we can look in the mirror, be reminded of how much God has forgiven us, that can help shape our perspective when it comes to forgiving others. See, here's our natural tendency. We downplay our own wrongdoings but magnify the wrongs of others toward us. Let's spend more time looking at the mirror, how much God has forgiven us. That will help us extend forgiveness to others. Third commitment, show kindness. Jesus taught us that we should show kindness to those who wrong us, despite how counterintuitive that may be. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. For if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Show kindness to those who wrong you. Now, showing kindness doesn't condone the wrong that's been done. It doesn't deny that there are consequences of behavior. And there are times when avoiding someone who's harmed you, especially if it puts you in a position to continue to be harmed by them, there are times when avoiding a person who can harm you is the right thing to do. But where possible, show kindness. Because as we work to show kindness toward others, it softens our heart toward them and enables us to forgive. And it's our hope, our desire, that in showing that kindness... We show others what it's like to experience the forgiveness of God in Jesus, what it's like to experience that and extend it to others, and they will be drawn to experience that same forgiveness in Jesus. And the apostle Peter, the early church leader, he promised a blessing for us if we will show that kind of kindness. 1 Peter chapter 3, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. Lastly, perhaps most importantly, the commitment we can make that will help us to show forgiveness, let God be God. It is so natural for us to want to seek revenge instead of granting forgiveness towards someone who's hurt us. But listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 in the Bible. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and then Paul writes the proverb that I clung to in my interaction with Marguerite. 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Not so that you get revenge. Paul says, so that you overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As followers of Jesus, we turn vengeance over to God to allow him to take care of it in his perfect ways, in his perfect timing. Well, there's a little more of the story with Marguerite. As I said, the conflict went on for over a year. And then the time came when I needed to complete an internship for college. And so I had to resign as the, the pastor of that little church. And the last Sunday I was there, they had a carry-in dinner. Everybody brought in food. We had a, a, a big meal. After the dinner, Marguerite pulled me aside. And she shared with me how even though she was a widow and had been for a long time, she was in her 70s, she had started dating someone. They talked about getting married. They'd even picked out rings. But she also shared with me that he was currently in the hospital and they had just gotten word from the doctors that previous week that it was terminal and he, he probably would not be coming home from the hospital. And then she said to me, Jared, we would have been honored for you to have done the ceremony. I should have left town that day thanking God for what he did. Instead, I left town that day saying, that was it. There was no apology in that. There was no tearful, I'm sorry, that came from, from Marguerite. I did my part, God. Where were the burning coals? Where was the revenge that I was promised? Fast forward a few weeks. I did my internship working with missionaries in Berlin, Germany. I got a letter from someone in that church in Missouri that said that the man that Marguerite had been dating, he had in fact died. And Marguerite was having a tough time with it. So I figured out the time difference and a time that would be good to call and made a phone call from that apartment in Berlin to Marguerite in Missouri. I don't remember all that we talked about on the phone, but I remember that at the end of the call, I offered to pray with her. And as I was praying, I could hear her begin to cry on the other end of the call. And then after I finished praying, she said, thank you, Jared. I love you. Sometimes we seek revenge on our own, but God has something far more beautiful in store. That's the rest of the story with Marguerite. There's also more to Mary's story. The woman in Minnesota whose son had been killed and his murderer then moved next door. Let's hear the rest of her story. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. 
and I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, CBS yes, News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. How beautiful it is when we can fully appreciate the vastness of God's forgiveness and in turn recognize the beauty of extending that same forgiveness to others. Mary recognized that forgiveness didn't mean forgetting about the death of her son. She said in that clip, me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. Sometimes there are hurts left even after forgiveness. But Mary stopped keeping score. She showed kindness to the man who had killed her son, and she left vengeance up to God. And that makes her a beautiful example for all of us. Wrapping up the Detour series today, I think if we were to try and come up with one word that is a summary of Joseph's entire life, I think it would be this, redemption. Redemption. Joseph's story was not free from pain. Far from it. Betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, thought to be dead by his father, wrongly imprisoned, forgotten for years in prison. Yet when in Joseph's story did we hear him blame God for what he did to Joseph? Joseph said to his brothers, God sent me here to be able to save our family, our future generations. See, I think we often misunderstand what it means to live life as a follower of Jesus. We think somehow if we commit to living that life that we are promised a life without detours. And so when they come, we say, God, how could you abandon me like that? But that's not what Joseph did. Because here's what, what Joseph understood. God's faithfulness doesn't mean a life free from tragedy. God's faithfulness means he can redeem tragedy. And Joseph recognized that because of God's faithfulness, Joseph's pain wasn't for nothing. God turned it into something that became a blessing to Joseph, to Joseph's family, to a whole region of the world. That's redemption. Last night and today, people are experiencing a beautiful picture of that kind of redemption. Last night, Waukesha campus, baptism bash, 18 people baptized, celebrated God's redemption. It's beautiful. <laughs> Following this service in Pewaukee, baptism bash. 
But it's not too late wherever you are, Pewaukee campus, Waukesha campus, even online, not too late to let us know that you want to experience the same thing. And if you're in Pewaukee or Waukesha, just go to the baptism table after the service. We have everything you need so that you can experience the symbolism of baptism, that redemption, that the old me is buried in the waters of baptism. The me that, yes, is full of pain looks back with regret on the times that I turned my back on God. That me can be buried so that a new me takes the place of the old me. The new me experiences redemption that despite the pain, despite my past, God can use me for good. Just like he did with Joseph. It's a beautiful picture that we see in baptism. And so it's not too late to decide to experience that. At Waukesha, there's a couple people after this service that are going to experience that. And again, Pewaukee, you're having a huge party after the service to celebrate it. So go to the baptism table after the service. We've got the towels, the change of clothes, so that you can participate in that. Let's close Joseph's story with this. Because Egypt has food, because of the kindness of Joseph... Joseph's brothers and their families, his father, basically all of Joseph's extended family moves to Egypt. After living there for several years, Joseph's father, Jacob, dies. And that makes Joseph's brothers nervous. And that's where we pick up Genesis chapter 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? What if Joseph's forgiveness was only for the sake of dad? And now that dad's gone, maybe, maybe he wants to get his revenge on us. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before Joseph. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You meant it for evil. God redeemed it and used it for good. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God redeemed it and used it for good. Today we've looked at three stories. We've looked at my story with Marguerite. We looked at Mary's story with the man who murdered her son. And we looked at Joseph's story. There's power in a story that reveals to us something about the character of God. And today, through the stories that we looked at, we were reminded of the redemption that God can bring into our lives through what Jesus did for us on the cross. There's power in a story that reveals something about God's character. And Jesus often told stories to reveal something about God. And we call those stories parables. Next week, we're starting a series here at River Glen called Stories That Change Everything. Taking a look at those parables of Jesus. And I hope that you'll join us as we start that series next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for an opportunity to take a look at the life of of Joseph over these last few weeks. Father, we're thankful for the reminder that we see in his story that even through the seasons of detour in our life, you are there, you are faithful. 
Father, thank you for the reminder that that faithfulness means redemption of the pain, of the sin in our lives. Father, thank you that you can take what was intended for evil, redeem it, and use it for your good. Father, we surrender our lives to you for you to do just that. Redeem us. Use us for your good. We pray in Jesus' name.